Heavenly Father, we just ask for You to speak in this room this morning. Lord, we're going to open up Your Scriptures and we're going to hear from You. And Father, I know that sometimes when we open Your Word or sometimes we come to worship, Lord, there can be distractions. I want to pray against those distractions. Lord, one might be just a little bit of fatigue as we had a time change last night and uh, that sometimes gets us, Lord, just sometimes fatigue. Sometimes, Lord, it can be things like sicknesses and colds that are going around that I know many are dealing with. Lord, I, I want to pray just against these kind of distractions. Sometimes, Lord, it can be work things that may be going on tomorrow. Maybe it's just a family situation that's bringing stress and worry to us. Lord, whatever the, the distraction possibly could be, Lord, help us to set aside. Help us to put it at Your feet. Help us, Lord, to have open hearts and minds and ears to hear from You. Lord, I do believe that each and every week when we gather, we're not here by accident. Lord, it was You that drew us to this place, and You draw us to this place because, Lord, You have a message for each and every one of us in this room. And Lord, I love how You use preaching uh, to change hearts and minds by the power of Your Spirit. And so, Lord, I know you can speak to every single person in this room today, and we ask that you will do that. Pray that your spirit be alive and active in this room. Father, speak to us as we get into your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the last few weeks, <clears throat> we've been walking through the letter of Colossians. I wanted to spend some time this morning as we begin just to kind of be reminded of some of the setting. I think whenever we walk through any kind of text in Scripture, it's helpful to know some of the background of what's going on because we get a better grasp then of what they were learning at that time and what they were dealing with which then helps us then to apply it to our setting here today. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter called Colossians around A.D. 60. That would be about 60 years after the life of Christ while he was on earth. Now Paul was a teacher and a preacher, and a church planner. You'd remember him in the book of Acts. His name used to be Saul. He met God, and his life was changed in a dramatic way. And after his life was changed, he went on and then became a great mouthpiece, so to speak, for the kingdom of God and sharing the gospel message. He had a long-distance relationship with the recipients who were in the city of Colossae. That's why the letter is called Colossians. It was about a 1,000 miles away. He was actually in a Roman prison when he wrote this letter. Uh, Colossae was in Asia Minor, which today would be present-day Turkey. So if you know your, your geography, you would kind of have an idea of where that's at. One of the unusual facts of this book is that Paul was writing to a group of believers that he had never met in person. He had just heard about their faith. He had heard about how the church was growing and the good things they were doing. And so he had never met them. In fact, many commentators say that the church was probably started by a man by the name of Epaphras who Paul taught and was able to share the gospel with in his ministry. And so this church was flourishing and doing some really good things until false teaching started to creep in and disrupted the growth and confused their theology. And so the church was going underneath some, some confusion point where they're like, okay, we understand that Paul taught us this, we understand what this means, but now these other philosophers are saying this and saying that. And so the purpose of writing this letter was Paul wanted to encourage the believers to stay true to what you believed in and to watch out for the false teaching. The false teaching was partly pagan and partly known as legalistic Judaism. 
Those two parts, the Jewish element asserted that believers had to observe certain days, deny themselves some types of food, follow certain rituals, follow all the laws. And so they were carrying over a lot of the Old Testament type teaching and saying, you've got to obey all this stuff in order to be right with God. And then the pagan segment emphasized self-denial and the worship of angels and a mystical wisdom that was available for only those who had special knowledge and some other kind of teachings that crept in there. And so they were dealing with, okay, we know Paul taught us this about Christ, and we believe that, but now we're wrestling with the Jewish tradition tells us this, and the pagan philosophy tells us this, and Paul's big concern in writing this was that in all these false teachings was the devaluing of Christ, and so he focused most of his attention in this letter on the supremacy of Christ, how great Christ is. And Paul starts lifting that up, and so Colossians in my opinion, is one of the most Christ-centered books. It's a book that's all about Jesus. The goal for this year is our, for our church is to fix our eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And so everything I'm doing in sermons is trying to lift our eyes up church and go, who is Jesus? What is Jesus? How do I worship Jesus? What's my walk with Jesus? And so as we fix our eyes upon Jesus and learn how to walk in Jesus, the book of Colossians ties right in. There's a mixing of views today. And so this study is so important because there's a lot of cultural confusion about Christ today. And we must come back to His absolute superiority and preeminence in our lives. See, in our world today, people are borrowing from this and borrowing from that. Oh, I heard this on a talk show. Oh, I read this article on social media. Oh, I read this book about this. Oh, I picked up this philosophy in college. Oh, my mom taught me this. My dad said this. My grandma said this. My friend said this. And we're mixing all these kind of philosophies and ideas and saying that's how I should live life, to be complete and to be full. And Paul's basically saying that's pop theology and it's hogwash. But they're actually dealing with the same thing. They were dealing with the same stuff. You need all these different kinds of, of things. Colossians is one of Paul's shortest letters, but I think it's one of what is most exciting. We're, we're encouraged to explore the treasures of the gospel and order our lives according to it under the lordship of Christ. Now, the word lordship for a lot of people is like, ah, I'm not sure because we accept Jesus as Savior, and then we say, and Lord. At least that's how we behave. But see, when we accept Jesus as Savior and Lord, that means He rescues from my sin, but also as Lord means He's in charge of my life. means He's got to be first place in my life. And so Paul lifts this up that says, is He superior? Is He supreme in your life? Is He everything in your life? Turn your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. In our text today, we're going to consider why it's all about Him and why it's all about, why it's all about Jesus. Open up your Bibles, whether you have a paper Bible or whether it's electronically on your phone or something like that. Very good. Even though I put scriptures on a screen, church, very important to have your scriptures with you. Because that's how you take some notes. You mark your Bible. You underline some things. You highlight some things. Rather, whatever kind of avenue you have. And so don't just rely upon what we put up on the screen. Make sure you bring your scriptures in and open them up with me. Colossians chapter 2. It's important for us to understand this why it has to be all about Him. We don't want to get to the end of our lives. I would say none of us want to get to the end of our lives in whatever year that is, whether I'm 60 or 70 or 80 years old, and we don't want to look back and go, man, I just kind of wasted life. I don't think any of us would want to be in that point. We want to look back and go, man, did I live for anything that was purposeful? 
I think every single one of us, when we reach that point of death, we're going to want to look back and say, I invested in the right things, not the wrong things. But it's too easy to walk through life investing in all kinds of wrong things, and then you don't realize it. And so what we're going to talk about today, hopefully we'll, we'll recalibrate some of our thinking or what we're investing in, what we're putting our time in, because we always need to remember what's most important in life. And this is what Paul's reminding the church in Colossae, and I come to you today, church, to remind you, this is what's important in life. Look at verse 9, chapter 2. For in Christ all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised. In, in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through the faith and the power of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins, in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made, the public, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Paul is screaming out to us, in this passage, it's all about being in Him and with Him and through Him. Let's just consider those thoughts today. What do we get when we look at in Him? It's all about being in Him. Is it this, the fullness of His deity? Look at Colossians 2, verse 9 through 11. For in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In Him, you are also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. One of the reasons it's all about Him is the fact that in Him, the fullness of deity lives. And since the word lives there is in the present tense, it actually indicates the risen Christ is still the fullness of deity as Savior as he was upon earth. The significance of the incarnation, the incarnation that God became man, that God came out of heaven in a form of a man by the name of Jesus, human, that that idea continues. The idea of fullness means that in every sense of the word, Jesus was God. That Jesus was not just some, someone who did good things. He was not just a good teacher. He was God in flesh, and now he is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And Paul's saying, listen, this God loved us so much, he came down out of heaven as a man. And a deity dwelled inside of him, and his name was Jesus. And since the fullness of deity rests in Christ, then the benefits of his saving grace can be found in nowhere else. And even though they're being taught these different philosophies, do this, do that, do this, to be right with God, Paul is coming back and saying, it's only in Christ. See, in Him you will find God. You ever notice how people search for God in all the wrong places? It's kind of like there's a, there's a hole in their heart and they go on a search and, and, and looking at all the things that this world has to offer. It may be quite possible you go down that journey. Or quite possibly, you can be in Christ and say, I've accepted Christ, but you're still searching for fulfillment because there's still a hole in your heart. Church, Paul is trying to remind us today, and I bring it to you, the only way to be full is to be filled in Christ. John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. 
That's what Paul's trying to say. The Word became flesh. That's God became flesh. May His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so God loved you and I so much, He came down out of heaven and came down to earth as a man. He made His dwelling among us. The deity lives. Secondly, in Him you have been made complete. See, the Colossians lacked nothing outside of Christ. In Him, they had everything they needed for salvation and right living. What does the completeness mean? Actually, the Life Application Bible, I like how it defines it, states it means that there is nothing lacking in a believer's relationship with God. God pours over, pours His love and power into believers, giving them fullness for this life and readying them for life to come. Believers need not look anywhere else. Christ is a unique source of knowledge and power for the Christian life. Christ alone holds the answers to the true meaning of life because He is life. So when you look at the idea of being complete, if you look around, look around people you interact with. Look around with people that, that you work with. Look around with people in your neighborhood. It seems like people are searching for something to give their lives a boost, searching for something to find answers. Few people seem content. Why is it so many self-help books are still out on the bookstores? Why are they still the number one sellers? Why is that kind of stuff still growing? All the kind of theology and the ideas that you see across social media, and they just continue to grow and grow. It's strange, and often it's hard to find people that are living and being happy with who they are in Christ because there's like this vacuum that gives people a, uh, an idea of incompleteness. A vacuum that gives people an idea that, that they're empty and that they need something more. We've got to understand, church, Christ fills the vacuum. He fills the vacuum. As Jesus' person is fully divine, so we, united by faith to Jesus, find personal fulfillment in Him. And Paul is telling us, Church, quit chasing anything else. Church, you need nothing else but Jesus Christ and Jesus alone. Now, is all that other stuff, is it wrong to have a job? No, absolutely not. Is it wrong to, to want a new house? No, absolutely not. But when that is where you're going for fulfillment and for contentment, then you're replacing Jesus with idols of this world. And Paul's saying, make Jesus number one in your life. Make Him be the one that fulfills you, makes you complete. John 1.16 says, For of His fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. I love that passage. It means He has made you very full in Christ. You don't have to look anywhere else to be complete. When you find yourself in Christ, you are complete. And remember, Paul has written this letter to Christians. He's written it to the church. And so it's very applicable to us who are in Christ. And if you are in Christ to understand well, I'm complete when I've accepted Christ. You need nothing else to be complete. You need nothing else to be full. So in Him, the deity lives, and in Him we're made complete, and in Him, your old life has been cut away. Jewish males were circumcised as a sign of the Jewish covenant with God. I won't get in a deep explanation of circumcision. I'll leave that for you parents to explain to your kids. That could be your lunchtime discussion today. Kids, you go home and ask mom and dad, what's that word he was talking about? Circumcision was an expression of Israel's national identity and a requirement for all Jewish men. Circumcision was a physical reminder to the Jews of their national heritage and their privilege. It symbolized cutting off the old sin, purifying one's heart, and dedicating oneself to God. And verse 11 tells us that in Him the body of flesh is removed. The word for removal denotes a taking off of clothing and putting them away, actually putting them away forever that you never want to see them or touch them again. 
Now, I would imagine that some of us in this room probably have some clothes way back in the closet or way down in a drawer somewhere that you go, I haven't worn that or pulled that sweater or that shirt or whatever. I haven't pulled that out in ages, but it's still there. And you know it's still there. And maybe after today you're going to go home and say, I need to clean out some closets to just get rid of some of that stuff I haven't touched in a long time. But this passage is talking about taking all that clothing, totally breaking away, and getting rid of it, but getting rid of it to the point where you say, it's gone. It's no longer part of me. It's not even in my house anymore. And that's what Paul is talking about here. If we're going to experience the fullness of Christ, we must take off the old way of life and embrace the new way of life that's offered in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Paul's saying, get rid of that old junk and embrace the new stuff that comes in Christ. See, the reason we're a new creation is because in him, the old life is cut away. The old life is done away with. It's all about Him because of in Him and with Him we have been buried. In Him we have been buried. Colossians 2 says, Having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through your faith and the working of God, who raised Him from the dead. Buried with Him in baptism. That's why we practice full immersion baptism. Because the scripture says, buried with him in baptism. And this is where the cutting away of the old self happens. Galatians 3.27 says, For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. That means we've taken off our old stinky clothing, the old way of living, and we've wrapped ourselves in a robe of Christ. When we are immersed, we actually put on Christ. We take off the old suit of clothing, and we clothe ourselves with Christ. This is one reason baptism is a significant part in the salvation process. Very significant. Romans 6.3 says, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? One of my concerns in the church and the world today is that we're trying to downplay the significance of meeting Christ in baptism. And Scripture does not do that. We, we, we see churches all the time just do simple things like, hey, pray this simple prayer, good, you're, you're going to heaven now. And I get a little concerned about some of that theology because I'm not sure that I see it in Scripture. Not see exactly how they practice it. Matter of fact, if you've never been immersed by, in baptism, you have questions about it, you've been trying to discover, you're trying to understand what it is, or if you've been debating about, do I need to do that, do I not need to do that, you must study Romans chapter 6. I don't have time in today's message to get into it, but you get into Romans chapter 6 and read Romans 6, 1 through 11, And look at that, and I think that's the best explanation about what baptism is and what happens in baptism in terms of our death, burial, and resurrection be united with Jesus and His death, burial, and resurrection. It's all explained right there. See, the great thing about being buried with Him is that you have been raised up. And Paul's reminding the church because, again, he's saying you've embraced baptism. You've done that before. And most in this room probably have too. You've been raised up. See, God did not leave you in a watery grave. You were raised with Christ. Christ rose from the dead. This gives us the opportunity to possess eternal life. When we are in Christ or when we're clothed with Christ, we receive this as part of the blessings that we receive from God. Notice that baptism without faith, though, has no effect. See, the passage says we are raised up with Him through faith in the working of God. 
Faith in a risen Savior is required before baptism is effective. Then and only then does it become a spiritual experience. Does it become a uniting of you with God? Baptism is not just a sign. It's not just an outward sign of something happening inward. It's not just a religious exercise or a religious ceremony. It is the meeting place where you put on Christ. It's the meeting place you put on Christ. Baptism without faith and repentance is nothing more than getting wet, though. See, if there's not faith and repentance, then getting in the waters of baptism is just like going for a swim in your backyard pool and your friends that are dunking you. But when it's joined together with faith and repentance and baptism, that's where you meet Christ and you, then you rise and you walk in a newness of life. If you've done that, and Paul's saying most of you have done that, Paul's saying at Church of Colossae, you've done that, then live in that because you've put on Christ. It's all about Him because in Him and with Him and lastly through Him, He made you alive. Look at verses 13 through 15. When you were dead in your sins and in uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. What does it mean to be alive? See, there are many people who are existing but they're really not living. See, when we are living life outside of God's purpose for our lives, then we're really not living life. And God has great purpose for us. In the context, what it is meant is the fact that when we are in Christ, we will have eternal life in Him. See, the passage in this verse tells us that we're dead in our sins and transgressions. And without Christ, we're dead. But with Christ, we're, we're made alive. And that's a life of eternity with God in heaven. See, when we commit our first sin, we separate ourselves from God, and Jesus then brings us back to life. Do, do you really want to experience life? Paul's saying that life is living in Christ. It's Christ that will make you alive. It's through Him He makes you alive, and through Him He forgave all your sins. 1940, a 21-year-old black man named W.D. Lyons was arrested for a brutal triple murder in Tulsa, Oklahoma. His conviction was based on a coerced confession, and his trial, they say, was a huge farce. While the truth was never fully determined, the murderers are probably committed by organized crime figures who had lions framed because he had a prior criminal record. No one in in the country, including the U.S. Supreme Court, had rules sufficient to get the truth, and Lyons was a man caught in a system where it seemed like there was no way out. And after 25 years in prison, Lyons was released by the governor of Oklahoma using his executive authority. Prison gates open, and Lyons walked totally free because of the governor seeing through the situation and what the truth was. See, spiritually, we're left without a defense. Spiritually, we're we're hopeless. We have no way out of the, the broken system, so to speak. We're on a one-way trip to darkness and death and an eternity separated from God forever, yet our pardon comes with a promise. And just like a governor who could pardon this, this man who spent 25 years in a prison, our pardon comes from what Jesus Christ did on the cross in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. God will guide us and prosper us in a new, new life in Christ. Not only is our conviction canceled, but we get the power of rebuilding our lives, make eternal life our goal, make eternal life our hope, and it's the way to live life. And Paul's saying, that's how you live because he forgave all your sins. He has pardoned us. He has set us free. Through him, he removed the burden of perfection. 
Verse 14, Paul speaks of canceling out a debt. This debt was a payment for our sin. The, the, the decrees that were hostile to us speaks of the law of Moses. The law of Moses was hostile because people thought they could live in perfection and when they couldn't, no one was saved by the law. It was hostile because except for Jesus, no one was able to keep it. And for of us who are in this room are perfectionists, we should get a big old amen and go thank you because we know it's impossible to live a perfect life. If we were to go around this room this morning, I started just asking you one by one by one, have you fallen short this week? Have you messed up? Is there some way in your life that you think that you probably did not please God? Did you break one of the commandments? Every single one of us, if we're honest, could say, yep, I've messed up this week. I spoke wrong, I thought wrong, I behaved wrong, I, whatever, I'm down the list. But we don't have to be perfect because of what happens through Christ. Through Him, perfection is removed. See, those under the law were, were still saved. They're saved by Jesus because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, which leads us to my last thought, that's through Him, you and I win. Through Him, you and I are winners. See, this disarming occurred when Jesus died on the cross. The word for disarmed is literally stripped, as in stripping a defeated enemy of armor on the battlefield. The powers and authorities of this evil world stripped Christ of His clothing and popularity. They made a spectacle of Him on the cross and triumphed over Him by putting Him to death. But ironically, the victory actually belonged to Christ. The victory belonged to Christ. Actually, He stripped the evil powers of their hold on the world, held them up to public contempt, and triumphed over them by taking His rightful power and His position. That means that you and I win when we live in Christ. That's victory. That's hope. Jesus deserves to be first place in our lives because it's all about Him. Our lives should be all about Him as we learn to live in Him and with Him and through Him. Here's the truth to really grasp. His life was all about you. His life was all about you and I. Why did God come down out of heaven and dwell in man, being Jesus, on earth? For you. For me. So that we can be rescued. He did all He could do for us. The question for us is, are we doing what we should be doing for Him? Have we responded? Do we respond day in and day out with Him being supreme, with Him being Lord, with Him being first in our lives? So I think this text speaks to two groups of people very clearly. One, it speaks to those of us who have claimed Christ, who are in Christ, who have, who have, who have repented and who put our faith in Christ and met Him in baptism. Then the question we have to ask ourselves, is He really Lord? Are we allowing Him to be first? And for us to answer that question, if He's not, for us to do some recalibrating this morning. For us to make some adjustments and go, Lord, you're not first in this place or in this place or in this part of my life, and Lord, I want you to be first place. The other part of this text, I think, speaks to those maybe in this room who are not in Christ. You've been wrestling with things of faith. You've been wondering, what does it mean? Paul is very clearly saying, here's where your freedom is at when you're in Christ. And today could be a day that you meet Christ. Today could be a day that you claim your faith and you repent and you enter into baptism and meet Christ right here and be clothed with Christ.